Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dowzicki. Make sure you've got your shoulder pads in and your pager charged because we are cracking open the cases of unexplained phenomena that are the X-Files. Joining us to discover if the truth is out there are historian and former assistant editor for intellectual history here at libertarianism.org, Anthony Comegna. Hello. And books editor at Reason and author of The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory, Jesse Walker. Howdy. So everyone, I thought it'd be good to start with what makes you love The X-Files? Why is it just quintessential 1990s TV? Oh man, I, I'll start with this one. It, there's there's this great uh, literary scholar, Paul Cantor, who's sort of in the libertarian world, and he has this argument that I just love that uh, the X Files and the Simpsons are the two greatest cultural products of that whole era in uh, a generation's worth of time, and that they they completely uh, reflect the times in which they were made and uh, the the ideas floating around the world. And I I personally, now that I've thought quite a bit about it in preparation for the show, I don't think any single thing has been more influential in making me who I am now, the the kind of academic I try to be and the kind of libertarian I think I am. And, and just sort of my general approach to life has so much been shaped by this incredible show. It's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. It, it's interesting that um, the Simpsons and the X-Files actually aired on the same night on Fox for a while in the nineties <laughs> and between them, they had King of the Hill, which had that kind of anti-authoritarian cartoon flavor of the Simpsons, uh-huh. but a bit more of a sort of populist libertarian angle. And also on that night, right before the Simpsons, a crappy show, but it sort of fit in too, was America's funniest home video. <laughs> sort of like the awful corporate TV um, precursor to YouTube and so on. So you can sort of see like all the uh, spirits in advance of uh, social media era anti-authoritarianism um, in uh, the Fox lineup of the mid-1990s. And I don't know quite what to make of that, uh, but it, I occasionally just find myself thinking about it at random while driving or showering or something. Well, I, I think th- that's something that deserves uh, a bit more elaboration because this is part of that uh, Paul Cantor argument that I mentioned. He, he he points out that Fox was on this quest to become to to break into the field of the major networks. There was only NBC, CBS, and ABC for like forever, and Fox was doing everything they could to avoid the kind of regulations that came along with being an official network, and yet run original programming and break into that network space. And they broke, they broke all the rules. They threw everything at the wall and saw what stuck. Uh, one of those rules was no sci-fi in prime time. Ever since Star Trek went down uh, back in the sixties, there, there was no sci-fi in any prime time slot and, and no animation in prime time. And they said, screw it. We're going to do it. We got these great, great shows and uh, it really made Fox the, uh, you know, titanic organization we know now. Do you know why that role came to be? Because sci-fi is like obviously a huge genre. I'm just wondering why, from like a uh, business perspective, why no sci-fi was in primetime. 
I think it was just that people uh, people thought it was hokey and weird, and you know, not it was not fit for massive consumption. Uh, but what they what they did by giving it a shot, as with so many of their other shows, you know, Fox had this thing where they would start a show and cancel it right away. Start a show, cancel it. Start a show, cancel it. And you know, they would cut shows before their pilot season even ended. Um, and they were just trying whatever they had in the pocket to see what worked. And they knew that if they tried a whole bunch, they would get some really, really big hits. So they just decided, you know what? We think there is a, a mass market out there for a really, really good sci-fi program. And it, it stuck. So I think there were some primetime science fiction shows. They weren't necessarily seen as genre shows. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what time the $6 million man was on um, uh, or, or quantum leap, but these were kind of um, these weren't sort of processed as genre shows, you know, even though they obviously had mm-hmm. science fiction elements. And I mean, one thing about um, TV in that kind of tightly regulated um, three network um, ad driven era was that, uh, you know, it, there was not since there wasn't as much room for imita- um, for uh, experimentation um there was a whole lot of imitation and it was a lot and it's a, it was the sort of environment where it was a lot easier to just um fall into path dependence and to assume that because something didn't work it wouldn't work again um and just to do you know the umpteenth attempt to remake friends uh, with a slightly different cast um <laughs> and and that's uh and that's the sort of thing that we've really, I mean, cable started breaking out of that. And then the addition of other networks, you know, helped as well. And of course, now we live in the streaming era and the rules have changed completely. Um, but, you know, the the, uh, the vast wasteland thing was real. And it, it's just that, um, although I, I, I think the particulars of the complaint about the vast wasteland were wrong. I mean, it, it was sort of a, a, a snobbish complaint from the, the FCC commissioner about all this kind of lowbrow material the the idea that um uh networks were uh, afraid to experiment um and to do something different uh was true but the main reason for that was because of institutions like the FCC um and the limits they put on uh competition and innovation and and creating something different and just creating another space for things um which and which is the irony of that speech since of course you know it was an FCC commissioner who wanted even tighter regulations um, that being, you know, the impetus behind it. Um, do you remember, Anthony, uh, the first time you saw the X-Files? Absolutely. I <laughs> I love this story, too, because it, it's the first TV show I remember clearly watching. It made that big an impression on me. I must have been uh, about five years old. I, I think it was during the first season. Uh, it was in November. I think we were headed to my step-grandparents' house in Altoona, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, probably for early Thanksgiving. And it, we got caught in the mountains in a really terrible snowstorm. And we had to pull over to a motel for the night and stay there. And my family, we were all, there were four of us. We, we like the heat was broken in this room. And so we were all huddled on, on the one bed under the covers together. And we turned on the TV and it was, uh, the, the episode is called ice. It's in the first season. It takes place in Antarctica. Oh, one of my so favorite episodes. Everything, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically what what's the what's the movie that it's uh, kind of a rip off of um, the thing. Yeah, it's just isolation and and coldness imagery everywhere. It fit the the context perfectly, 
And we're, we're all like huddled there in the dark and the cold watching this. And right as somebody, you know, is about to be murdered by the body snatching uh, parasite alien, the lights went out <laughs> in, the, in our room and the TV oh went off and we just all screamed. And, you know, I, it just stuck with me forever. I, I was absolutely in love by, by how they made this show and the, the kinds of terrifying stories that they would come up with. It was just fantastic. That sounds like a cold open to an X-Files yeah. episode. Like <laughs> yes. pulling, having to pull over in a storm in the middle of, you know, on your way to Altoona and going to a roadside motel and the lights going out. Just like I hear the music swelling yes. as you tell it. It was a perfect moment. So I do not remember what the first episode I saw was. But what I do remember, I had... um in 1993, I was a couple years out of college. I had stuck around Ann Arbor for about a year. We was working at a bookstore, and then I got a job in the Pacific Northwest, and I had moved out to this small town. Um, I didn't have cable. It wasn't really worth it because the local cable system just meant better reception. They didn't have any choices. I had I didn't have the Internet because I had left that behind my um, – university account and I wouldn't rejoin for a few years. This is like a level of sort of media barrenness that is unimaginable to people today. Um, <laughs> and I, um, I, but I stayed in touch with, you know, my old friends in Michigan and, you know, who, I mean, among other things, we had gotten together every week to watch um, Twin Peaks, which I think we're going to get into later. as kind of a precursor to the X-Files. Certainly an example of that kind of new um, readiness to experiment in the 1990s. And I remember one of them just telling me, have you seen this show, The X-Files? And I said, no, I haven't heard of it. Um, and he says, oh, well, it's, um, it's, it's, I said, what, what is it? He says, well, you know, it's this show. It's, I guess the idea is there are these the files of the unexplained things that uh, the FBI, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of got this vague sense that it was like some sort of Leonard Nimoy in search of type um, show <laughs> where they, you know, have like some sort of fake to do about, um, yeah. you know, something, you know, a Loch Ness monster or whatever. So I, I came out of this bad explanation with the sense that I had no interest in this show whatsoever. And I stumbled onto it. I remember it was one night where they were trying to bring in more viewers by showing a bunch of episodes in a row. Um, and I just watched that whole evening and, and realized that, no, this was um, something very different. Um, and, you know, I, I, in, in retrospect, um, being in a tiny apartment in the rural Northwest is kind of the ideal place to start watching The X-Files. Um, but, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I remained a fan for, I mean, I, I kind of tuned out for the last few seasons, um, but watched pretty consistently through 1998 or nine or so. Jesse, you bring up a point about the media landscape today and how that your type of disconnection and isolation from media would be shocking to a lot of people today. Do you think a show like the X-Files, is there an equivalent today that you think is is sort of accomplishing similar things whether in tone or in uh sort of popularity and would a show like the x-files in its like purest most appreciated sense be appreciated today so it's difficult for me to answer that because my media consumption patterns have changed so much I watch more shows just binge watching after they're over or three seasons in now than I do by paying attention week to week. They're like, you know, maybe three yeah. or so shows at any given time I will actually watch from week to week. And even then I might fall behind. Um, so I'm, 
I'm just sort of not plugged in in the way I, you could be when there was, you know, four commercial networks plus PBS. But I will say that since, I mean, part of that sort of change to the, um, to the landscape we're talking about was this discovery that you could pursue a niche audience, that you could pursue a cult audience. I mean, that was sort of a, a big um, buzzword in the 90s. Um, not cult as in, you know, get in a circle in the word woods and sacrifice somebody, but <laughs> cult as in the devoted fans of a particular um, property. Um, and uh, obviously that was part of like the discovery of the science fiction audience in primetime was, was being able to do this. So, and that's, that's actually one of the ways I think the X-Files is a precursor, even if people consume the X-Files differently than they might today consume Riverdale or um, I, I, I'd say that cause I actually watch it, <laughs> but, but you know, whatever other sort of count or Mr. Robot, which I guess went off the air about a year ago um, or something else that's kind of in the same lineage as X-Files. It's also funny because right now, I feel like we see an explosion of these sci-fi shows. They're much more popular than they were back when the X-Files first started, um, but they all, all look very different. So even like if it's dystopia, so like something like The 100 is very popular and has a very like cult-like, again, not like Kool-Aid cult, but like very loyal audience. Um, and I think partially it's due to X-Files that we have, we have this offshoot of many different sci-fi genres. Um, cause there were, so this is, I'm going to out myself here. This is the first time I've ever seen an X-Files episode. Um, it was last week. I still think it is popular today as in, uh, getting to Landry's question that it can still be consumed today and seen as like popular and, um, interesting. I thought it was very entertaining. I really liked it. And I was skeptical. Uh, going into watching it. But I think one of the biggest things that struck me was that it seemed so ahead of its time in terms of casting. Um, I noticed right away that they, there's a strong female lead, Scully's a strong female lead, which was, from my understanding, not, especially in primetime, not something that occurred uh, occurred normally unless it was like a soap opera show. Then there are obviously uh, more females than those. But um, and then I read up on it later that the uh, creator of the show actually did that intentionally, hoping that more shows would um, more shows would respond with more fe more female characters or strong female leads. Um, and I, I was even thinking, like going back to the hundred, the hundred has a strong female lead as well. So I'm wondering if X Files kind of opened the door to a to a more robust sci fi genre that we have today. Yeah, I mean, I mean, its influence is considerable just because it was both so successful and, you know, so well written and had such good chemistry between the leads and, you know, all the things that make people still watch it today. Um, of course, it, it also had, I got to say, one sort of negative influence. Uh, one, and this is something which you don't necessarily get when you're watching it um retroactively but when you were watching it west to week, week to week there was this kind of shift where at the beginning the mythology episodes were something you looked forward to like you were unlocking these sort of larger pieces of a bigger puzzle and after a few years at least for me anytime there was a mythology episode i would be like oh god it's going to be more of this stuff that doesn't add up just get back to the damn monster <laughs> of the week give me a well-written <laughs> show that is resolved in uh, i mean story that is resolved in 50 minutes um and, uh, you know, I mean, some shows are able to actually um, keep the momentum, have uh, an overarching plot that they've thought out in advance or that they're able to, in an improvisatory way, turn into something um, 
uh, that that works, and they um, even sometimes get better as they go along. Um, but it there have been so many examples of of places that just kind of wrote themselves into a corner, the way the X Files ultimately did. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, Lost is kind of the famous example, but Lost, you know there are other ones. Dexter. Yeah, it's so. <laughs> I think that that was. Um, you know, the X-Files should have been more of a negative lesson, but I think, you know, like, don't do this. But a lot of people thought, well, I, I just won't make the mistakes the X-Files did. I'll, I'll do it this way. Um, there's actually a moment in the final episode of the original run of the X-Files where um, uh, Mulder is testifying before, like, a secret tri- government tribunal or something like that. And at one point, the judge or whoever is in charge turns to him and says, is this going anywhere? And I thought, oh, so many times I've said that to the screen <laughs> while watching this show. Yeah, so much of the show just became, uh, you know, they, they did have a really great balance, though, I thought, between those uh, sort of story arc, uh, series arc episodes and the Monster in the Box episodes. Because they did really draw you back in, uh, like you said, every you know for years and years until maybe you you ended up getting tired of it uh, in the long run. You know, everybody wanted to see a, another smoking man scene, right? Uh, and I mean, it even made it into that that song, um, whose name I can't remember. I hope the smoking man's in this one. Like it, it, people definitely wanted that, and I, you know, this might get us into talking about Twin Peaks a little bit because, as I understand the the, I, I just I use my quarantine time on advice of uh, Cato's own Caleb Brown to watch Twin Peaks, and um, as I understand it, David Lynch's intention going into that show was to always leave the murder of Laura Palmer unsolved, specifically because he hated how TV had become this like throwaway thing where you you tune into a a meaningless episode each week that goes nowhere except you know with somebody dying at the end uh and justice being served and whatever and what he wanted to do is show how the murder of a single person like laura palmer could so uh, uh deeply impact people's lives across this place of twin peaks and he so he never wanted it to be solved and in in that way she keeps moving on affecting people and affecting the viewer and essentially, the the audience and the network muscled him out of that plan and uh, made them uh, wrap up the murder of Laura Palmer earlier in season two. And so David Lynch quit the show, and the it, it just went downhill from there. It was terrible for most of that season, right up till the very end when he came back. Um, and you know, I think I get the sense at least that the X Files sort of tried to learn from that and decide we're never going to really know whether the aliens exist or not, or whether Mulder is correct about all of, uh, or any of his theories or not. We're going to keep this sense of doubt and mistrust going on and on and on and on throughout the course of the entire show. The main characters won't even know what they think anymore by the end of it. Uh, and I, I think you see that play out over and over. And it, it does, for me at least, it adds a lot of uh, really good flavor to to the the dynamic, especially between Mulder and Scully and uh, you know, the, the questions involved about who to trust and uh, what to do with, with you know, certain types of authority. Although I got to say, um, at some point when he was saying, maybe I don't believe in aliens anymore, I, I want to say, well, remember on that Monster of the Week alien uh, episode where you actually saw an alien? <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there, there was this failure to sort of like collect those as part of the clues as well that started to get on my nerves. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're right about Twin Peaks. On, I mean, I don't remember if Lynch actually left the show or not. It's been so long. But 
I yeah, do. He did, the, he did. Yeah, I do. I do remember he quit that. In a rage is that I had um, during the first season when it was super popular. I mean, I thought it was bizarre that the um, hype around it was sort of in that kind of who shot Jr. style, who killed Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. When to me that was not what was interesting about this show, and and certainly those. I mean, I would watch that as a communal thing with a group of people, and I don't remember any of us like afterwards trying to. Um, theorize about i mean maybe a little bit i mean it was more like these sort of weird moments of you know the fbi agent suddenly going off on a rant about tibet and throwing <laughs> stones to, i mean this i mean that right. was the sort of stuff we wanted to rewatch. we were interested in these characters we were interested in the surrealism we were interested in the humor um and you know if an episode had a lot of those moments then you know you know, our housemate might get home from uh, from work and we say, oh, we're going to watch this again because we would always record it on VHS tapes. Again, this is like another media era. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and it was bizarre to me that I, I, I don't know how typical we were, but I felt like there was a disconnect between what a lot of the fans were getting out of the show and what a lot of the network hype machine thought we wanted to get out of the show. Um and what they were playing up in the advertisements. And, uh, and of course, back then there were online discussions, but the web didn't even exist. I mean, we're talking about Usenet and, and its counterparts. And so you can actually go back and look at those, but I'm not so sure that it was influencing um, network, for better or for worse, network decisions the way online discussions can today. This is kind of a, a good segue into the the fir- very first episode, and I, I saw that Jesse pointed this out in his notes too, is that the in the opening credits, it says the following story is inspired by actual documented accounts. Um, and I think this is, again, kind of at that surrealist point. It, I looked at that and I like had a very puzzling look. I was like, wait, isn't this show about like aliens and like uh, conspiracy <laughs> That's theories? Right. That's <laughs> right, was, like, Natalie. And I was like, am I reading this correctly? Um, well, that's so. that's the sort of thing that makes you think you're watching In Search Of, <laughs> you know? I mean, right. and, and that's, I think that there was really that kind of um, a genre influence of those old sort of 70s shows on the X-Files. And also, of course, the other thing is that this is at the peak or one of the peaks of public interest in the idea of alien abductions. You had all these people who had said they'd had recovered memories of being abducted by aliens. Um, this was a huge pop culture thing right then, and a lot of people believed this was actually going on. And it, I think part of what was going on there was um, kind of an effort to appeal to that audience. And maybe there's some half-assed way that it's half true, like it's um, it's documented that somebody claimed this happened to them under uh, hypnosis, you know. <laughs> um, but and that's itself part of the political context of that of the pilot. I mean. The um, I mean, the two most important things to me as far as like when uh, the X-Files started is, first of all, it's in that moment, um, that historical moment after the Cold War and before the War on Terror. Um, mm-hmm. And this is like the one time in my life um, that the United States has not been sort of permanent in this sort of permanent mobilization against an, an, an enemy, um, an outside enemy. And that had a real interesting impact on the culture. And part of and I think we might get into this later. One thing the X-Files does is to rewrite the history of the Cold War. Um, but another thing it does, and this is you know related to that, is to start imagining um, enemies elsewhere, which really fits what a lot was happening. Uh, certainly on the political right, you had the sort of people 
who in the past might have been suspicion, suspicious of you know, the Soviets, were now casting, looking at something like Waco or Ruby Ridge and casting their eyes upward um, and being much more suspicious of uh, government that they were cheering on, you know, rah-rah, just five or ten years earlier. Um, but also, you know, the alien abduction, I mean, the abduction story goes back, a different, a different sort of abduction story goes back a long ways in um, American history. You have, um, uh, you know, uh, captivity narratives in the earliest, um, uh, some of the earliest literature of the colonial era, people talking about being captured by, in, um, by Indians and living among them and then coming out. This was not, I mean, there's actually an even earlier version of the genre in Europe with people being captured by pirates. And there's a passage I, I brought here um, uh, from uh, Richard Slotkin, who's a historian and literary scholar in a, a great book called Regeneration Through Violence, he, describing the archetypal captivity story. He says, a single individual, usually a woman, stands passively under the strokes of evil, awaiting rescue by the grace of God. In the Indian's devilish clutches, the captive had to meet and reject the temptation of Indian marriage and or the Indian's quote-unquote cannibal Eucharist. To partake of the Indian's love or his equivalent of bread and wine was to debase, to un-English, the very soul. There was this um, idea of you being cap captured by an alien force. And I should add that, you know, in a lot of the early conspiracy theories of colonial era, it's not just Indian conspiracy. They were believed to be actually being directed by Satan. Um, and even in some cases to have been brought over from Europe by Satan when Christianity spread Europe and he wanted his own base elsewhere. Um, and then to have uh, to be um, violated their body um, in ways that I think we're familiar from later alien abduction accounts and um, to be uh, the threat of being turned into something that is not fully human yourself. And over the course of uh, the X-Files, this idea of hybrids among us becomes like a big part of the scare there. So the uh, sort of the underlying um, master plot. So you've got this old story that has come up in different guises that's now being sort of presented in this extraterrestrial context. And it's popping up at this time when you don't have um, a natural sort of um, enemy like uh, Osama bin Laden or Leonid Brezhnev that you can point to. Um, just a sort of more ethereal force in the skies that may or may not be aligned by forces within our own society. That's a really potent combination. And in some ways, uh, one that has some kind of creepy underlying politics, um, but it can be a really um, uh, potent um, uh, story, a uh, source for sort of paranoid storytelling. Um, so, and then one other thing I'll throw in, but I've, I've talked too long, is this is also the tail end of the satanic panic. Um, and in the pilot uh, episode, there is sort of a throwaway reference to uh, like, well, maybe it's a satanic cult. No, I think it's this. But that also had that kind of idea of, of people under hypnosis having recovered memories of, of something terrible being done to them. And uh, for a lot of people, I think um, aliens kind of took the place of uh, what was believed to be either the devil itself or people who believed in the devil um, in, in this story. So, I mean, this, I mean, this is the context of 1993 when you have this pilot story, which is, you know, echoing Twin Peaks. You've got the FBI going to the rural Northwest to investigate the, a, a crime, um, but, you know, then ultimately winds up going in a very different direction. Well, it's also interesting that you bring up this is kind of like the height of 
uh, alien abduction kind of being like a real fear or maybe not a real fear, but it's talked about more because isn't this also the time period that like Independence Day and Mars Attacks, like those movies came out, which are like, yeah, I think those were like the late 1990s, like 96 or 97, I think, which are like some of the most popular alien abduction movies still today. Um, I, they just did a, uh, sequel to Independence Day actually not too, not too long ago, but okay. I have to ask, do you think this show may uh, convinced anyone that aliens are real? Oh, definitely. 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 Okay. And and I'm not, I'm not saying me, Landry, (laughs) I know you're thinking it. No, I was just waiting for it. I was waiting for someone to be like, and I am one of those people. Yes. <laughs> no. no, my my family actually uh, used to make fun of me because I had a really, really big head and big ears as a kid. And they said I looked like an alien. So I was maybe uh, predisposed against the whole uh, idea in the first place because I'm a human, damn it. <laughs> By the way, this was also the big boom in pop culture of alien. I mean, of angel stories. I was working mm-hmm. in a in a in the original actual Borders bookshop, if you remember that chain in Michigan before I, I left town. And there was suddenly like all these books about angels, people buying angel um, books, people buying angel tchotchkes. Um, it became a big pop culture thing. And there was sort of the Christian version. There was sort of the New Age version. But it was, you know, palpably the benevolent counterpart to the alien er- narratives, um, especially the New Age versions of it, um, where you sort of get completely detached from sort of familiar theology and it just becomes, um, you know, this benevolent force in the skies intervening in people's lives. Uh, So that's also part of the context. And it would be, I don't remember the X-Files doing an angel episode. Maybe I missed one, but that would have been an interesting genre crossover if they ever had. Well, there was certainly, I mean, there's huge elements of uh, discussions of faith, uh, especially like what one thing we're not going to talk about much because it's not that good. But I, my father, who is a big X-Files fan, and the reason that I got into the show, um, we saw the the movie that came out several years ago, the, the I think it's I Want to Believe, which is a huge exploration of faith and angels and i going back and rewatching the show that sort of theme is certainly prevalent throughout x-files as well and sort of the 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 sort of comparison of of you know belief and and blind faith whether it's in aliens or in uh god or uh, angels is is certainly palpable uh as well I, and I, I think it's important to note, along with, with Jesse's last point there, that this is also the era when Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods was massively huge, and, and he was coming out with sequels to that now and then, and uh, that whole field of sort of um, uh, ancient pseudo-archaeology was booming, and people very clearly started relating uh, angels and aliens as the same thing. And that was sort of... N- no longer looked at as as some kind of um, uh, purely off the wall new agey thing, but it was now something that you know real religious people who adhere to the uh, biblical dogma could actually get behind and not feel like they were you know uh, renouncing their faith by believing in aliens. Although um, there, there's also, I mean, I looked at some some of this literature when I was writing the um, the conspiracy book. There was a rich vein of um, uh, Christian literature in which 
the um, which was against the angel boom because they believed the angels uh, that people believed they were contacting were demons in disguise. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, I mean, a lot of this stuff gets uh, sort of switched. But you're right. I mean, von Doniken, his big moment was in the '70s, early '80s, because I was a little kid. I remember that being something we talked about on the playground. But there was this next wave of it from people like Graham Hancock in the '90s, yeah. um, which I think made it even more mainstream, at least in some circles. And that's part of the backdrop to this too. I think you're right. Coast to Coast AM also started up in, in this era and uh, fuses these kinds of uh, narratives together and, and tries to make sense out of all of it and fit it into people's pre-existing worldviews. I, I love the, the dynamic of, of course, Scully is the skeptic and Mulder is the true believer, but Scully's a, a Catholic, at least for most of the show. And she, you know, professes this uh, belief in God and she wants to believe, too. Um, even though she well knows that she has no conclusive evidence one way or the other. Uh, but, but she can't, she still can't seem to relinquish that because it provides her some genuine comfort, something she feels like she can hold on to and count on the more that she sees, you know, the, the world, uh, go to hell and, and everybody is a liar and everybody's distrustworthy or mistrustworthy. And, uh, you know, she, she still finds value in, simply believing in her faith, even though she it, it is challenged over and over again. I think this might be a good time to get into like the specific episodes that we watched and maybe dive into those a little bit more. I'm just, I'll go right out there. Clyde Bruckman was my favorite episode by far of the um, five that we watched. I actually watched the uh, one we said we weren't going to watch too, but, um, and I was, I think it was my favorite by far because it was one of the ones where I was, it was one of the ones where I was hoping like this, this could actually happen. If that makes sense. Um, like I was like, thought it from a, like a cool angle that I like, Oh, this, if this was, if this, any of them were to be real, it would be best if this one was real. Um, and I was kind of wondering uh, what you guys thought of the Clyde Bruckman episode. Do you think, w- would it be cool to know how people die? Would you not want that? superpower let's call it a superpower i, I definitely um, would not want that superpower um, no. <laughs> it's, okay me neither <laughs> it, it's I, first of all let's just say peter boyle is fantastic in this episode um oh, I, mean, absolutely. I, I always i always enjoy peter boyle but this is one of my favorite performances he ever did um and and also just like one of the easter egg here eggs here um is that there was a real person named clive Bruckman who was um a hollywood director in this uh in the silent era, uh, he worked with Buster Keaton and others, and he ultimately committed suicide. So that's part of like the, um, wow. the yeah, the, uh, I mean, this is one of the um, episodes that Darren Morgan wrote. He's the best writer who ever came to the show, in my view. Um, and he regularly undermined all the sort of basic ideas of the show. Um, but I, I mean, I, while this would not, this is not my personal favorite of these five I, I think it it's definitely one of the best episodes they ever did um and and you can see that sort of the way it mocks Mulder in particular um the way that it um sort of um mocks the i you get it gets more into this with the other morgan episode we're talking about but kind of mocks the idea of um you know whether you know of, of the truth and whether you actually want to know the truth um, and then there's this underlying sort of discussion of free will versus determinism, which is there in a smart way, but never in a heavy handed way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, it's just very well written. 
Yeah. Also I mean, about uh, our, our, our ability to see patterns in coincidence, which is a big part of what, you know, I mean, again, sort of poking fun at the very raison d'etre for the X-Files, which is finding uh, conspiracies everywhere. Uh, on the on the subject of free will, we had a long discussion about Westworld um, a few months ago, and obviously that show is very very heavy handed on us uh, telling you that it's about free will. Um, I, I can't think of a show that's more heavy handed on it. Uh, but I think uh, at, on a whole, from the episodes that we watched, X Files is much more uh, much more subtle, which makes it a bit less like in your face and a little more believable, if that makes sense. So like. For instance, like we talked about earlier, they're not coming out and saying whether or not aliens do or do not exist. They're kind of like letting leading the audience on. And I kind of find that much more entertaining than like hand holding us and like telling this is how it happens. Then this is how it ends, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I really appreciated that from the show that I've from parts of the show that I've seen so far. And I'm going to I'm going to keep watching, too, uh, um, yes. now that I've gotten. Yes. Hooked Good. Onto the show. <laughs> Um, but I did think it was really interesting because I, I am a huge Westworld fan and like I did pick up on the elements of free will throughout the Clyde Bruckman episode, but I thought it was done in a, more flawlessly than they do than they um, talk about free will in Westworld. See, I think my favorite episode is probably the, the least subtle of the ones that we watched uh, postmodern Prometheus. And it, it's just, you know, it's it's. Right out there, obviously, a, a Frankenstein remake, and they, they do just throw the message right at you. Mulder has this little soliloquy he gives about, look, look what you've all become. And, uh, you know, I, but but it's just, it's great. It's such a great episode. It's quirky, goofy, artsy, funny. And I love it when a, a really, like, dark and serious sci-fi show can break out of that so well and write a, a comedy episode or an artsy episode. And I think this is kind of both. And, you know, it, like to me, the, the only other show that does it maybe as well as the X-Files is Stargate, the original Stargate series. And I think that was in part, at least because nobody took that show seriously. Like it, it's just one of these pew pew laser battle type shows uh, with, with lots of, of uh, big explosions in space and, so, you know, when they wrote a comedy episode, it was just great. And, you know, I, I think that people may not have even really thought to do that, uh, if, if not for a show like The X-Files breaking out of it at least, you know, twice a season and doing such a great job at it. It's not cheesy and dumb like like when Star Trek does it. Uh, it it's just it's still so good. Absolutely top notch. So, you know, what show I, is like to my mind, the extension of the X-Files comedy episodes was Gravity Falls. Hmm. If any of you guys watched that cartoon? Yeah, I've seen some of it. It certainly yeah. does. It's, it leans on that, certainly. Yeah. So can I make two points about postmodern Prometheus? Because this is one of my favorite episodes. Absolutely. It's, it's certainly my favorite one that Darren Morgan didn't write. Um, but <laughs> this, is the, this is the one that happens when the show is confident enough in itself that it's willing to end an episode by having... Mulder and Scully take Frankenstein's monster to a share concert. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of thing you do. I mean, either you're jumping the shark or you are reaching new <laughs> levels of the sublime. And in this case, I mean, that final scene is one of the most, uh, I mean, whatever else you think about the rest of the episode, which I enjoy, they have Jay Peterman as Frankenstein, yes, uh, you know, I mean, yes. you know, it's, but I mean, that is one of the most joyful scenes I've ever seen on, on television. Um, certainly the most joyful scene in um, this show. 
But the wild thing about it is that, I mean, it's preceded, of course, by Mulder saying, this is not how it should end. I want to see the writer. I want a new ending. And I think that scene is the alternate ending for the series as a whole. I, because the central horror of the X-Files is this idea of alien invaders abducting people and violating their bodies and producing hybrids. And this is a story about this alien-seeming creature invading people's homes, violating their bodies in ways that are actually really kind of creepy to think about, um, and producing hybrids. And then that final scene reimagines the whole idea as a utopia. Um, they all come together. Everybody is happy. The monster is, is, is at you know, the peak of happiness. And Mulder and Scully are dancing together. And it's like everything you would want from what if everyone, all this could get along um, in this uh, story that, you know, in itself is just really kind of um, effective. Um, and it's, it's, it's been Chris Carter who created the series and wrote the mythology episodes and so on. He wrote this episode. And I think he was not just setting out to write a Frankenstein pastiche, not just setting out to do his version of a Darren Morgan episode, um, not just saying, you know, how can I, um, you know, do an homage to the Universal movies and have a soundtrack that makes it feel like Tim Burton and so on. It's like, I think he was saying, you know, this is a completely alternate take um, or, or reimagining of the X-Files. And that's part of what makes it um, uh, such a resonant episode, even if some of that works on a more, um, and that, that is a way that I think it's being subtle, even if he kind of holds your hand and shouts in your face and at, at other moments. <laughs> <in there. laughs> Yeah, it's certainly it, I had seen a lot of the X-Files before. Um I mean not I not getting into the later seasons. Or I've seen, you know, bits and pieces here and there, but for some reason I had never seen Postmodern Prometheus, at least not to my recollection. Uh it really stuck out to me because it didn't feel like an X-Files episode, but not in the way that other episodes that kind of are supposed to be sort of lampooning different things. Uh, necessarily do those still feel they have that sort of x-files banter or like odd uh, pacing but it, it still feels like in within the same vein whereas postmodern prometheus really did and and it the ending was a big shift for me like i could i could justify it watching the first 90 percent of it but when they get to the nightclub where the i, I was really hoping that they actually had gotten share for the episode <laughs> and then when they kept avoiding her face i was like yeah oh, that would have been that would have been the perfect you know uh cherry on top to actually get share for it it but it was it was so odd to me even for an x-files episode and i I wasn't sure what to think of it. Um, and, and like something that, that Jesse had mentioned, the hybridization violation of the, the people of the town to create these, um, these human animal hybrids, it was, it was, it made me uncomfortable. Um, but then when they were the, the juxtaposition of the, um, the animals versus the, the humans in the town at first, because it's this sort of mob moment where they're, where they're pointing at them and saying, look what you've become. I was like, Oh, they're trying to compare the people, you know, we're no better than the animals or something like that. And then I realized what they were trying to insinuate. And I was like, Oh, this is even worse. And then they all get together at the end and they go see Cher and everyone's like, you know what? It's cool. I was, I, I couldn't, I couldn't square it. So it certainly, I will never forget it. 
and I didn't hate it, but I was not, it didn't give me what I wanted out of an X-Files episode. But then I also, as soon as it ended and the book cover closes and you see Chris Carter's name on the back, you are reminded that the entire thing is framed as a comic book. It's, it's a la the great Mutado, that book. And I, that at the very end is a reminder of how you have to conceive of the episode. And I think taking that sort of comic book-esque framing justifies it and, and makes it all the more palatable um, in a way that if you just remove those two frames from the very beginning and very end with the comic book covers and, and fade-ins, I wouldn't have appreciated it as much. Um, but, but I think that kind of justified it for me. Shout out to uh, the Jerry Springer show here, too, because <laughs> a lot of those yes. violations, the, the people in the town didn't seem to mind it too much because they, they got what they really wanted, which was some excitement, some attention, some story right. to tell. Uh, and that's that's what really mattered to them. And I think this leads into another uh, sort of episode that we watched. Uh, and we picked a handful for Natalie to watch because she had not experienced the show before. And we picked quite the grab bag for her. <laughs> um, Some of these are because, not very representative, Natalie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But but I, I think you still you still appreciated them. And uh, I think eventually you'll be able to go back and appreciate some of that mythology arc that Jesse was talking about. So we watched the pilot. We watched Clyde Bruckman, which is one of my personal favorites because Peter Boyle was so great in it. We watched Postmodern Prometheus. And another one that kind of bucks the trend of X-Files episodes, but to me is a little bit more true to the tone, is the next one and another one of my favorites, Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Uh, another Darren Morgan episode, sort of a Rashomon-style rehashing of events from a collection of unreliable narrators um, that I an, – another masterful uh, guest performance by Charles Nelson Riley, um, who is you know, an incredible um, – uh, character, but also more cameos from people like Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek. Uh, uh, let, let's I, be respectful here. It's the body, okay? Governor, <laughs> Governor, Governor Jesse the Body Ventura. Of That's course, right. his okay. Of course, please get the name right. <laughs> My apologies, Governor. Um, I this was, this was, this was before he was a governor and before he was a famous conspiracy theorist. And I like to imagine this was the beginning. <laughs> this is what did it. Yeah. What uh, what made you both interested in uh, discussing this story? Because I believe I believe you both suggested it, uh, if not at least one of you. I just think uh, uh, it's very, it's another very fun episode, and I love the fun episodes because they're done so well, uh, almost universally. I really can't think of a, a fun episode of the X Files that I that just is not fantastic. I'm sure they're out there, especially in the in the Agent Doggett seasons, but uh, it's just so great. And yeah, you gotta you gotta love Jesse the Body popping in there. It's uh, the real men in black. <laughs> I, I will say on, on the topic of fun episodes, the, the Forrest Gump pastiche did not quite work for me. Um, but I'm sorry, I interrupted <laughs> you. Go on. <laughs> Go on, Anthony. I'm sorry. I, I stepped on oh, you. Oh, no, that was, that was it. I, I just love how fun it is. And uh, yeah, the, the cameos are great. Yeah. 
I, and unreliable narrator stories are, are so uh, interesting. So yeah, this this is my favorite episode of the show. Um, it's it's one of my favorite episodes of any shows. Um, it um, and then you know it's back to that sort of original setup of you know the pilot. You know, an an alien abduction in the Pacific Northwest, or seems to be an alien abduction. Um, but this is the one that really I think turns the whole uh, in a different way than postmodern Prometheus turns the show on its head because the big quest in um, the X-Files is to uh, determine the truth. And this is a episode that among other things is about the impossibility of ever quite getting to the truth um, and about just the sort of misperceptions and miscommunications, you know, that make up human communication um, or, or just human society. Um, and uh, at, at very least, you know, a truth that can be captured by a single um, master narrative. Um, it's even more postmodern than the episode with postmodern in the title. And right. it's it's <laughs> also, um, it, it, you know, if the show kind of, if the big flaw in the show, uh, show as, a, as a whole was the fact that it tried to sum things up in a master narrative and, and failed to, this is the one that, I mean, Philip K. Dick had a great um, uh, essay called How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later or Two Hours or whatever it was. And he basically says in there, honestly, I, I, I get a great pleasure in building universes that do fall apart two days later, <laughs> um, which if you read Philip K. Dick makes sense. Well, this is um, an episode by someone who loves just pulling the strands of, of, of uh, you know, pulling the yarn on the sweater and, and having it all fall apart. I'm completely mixing metaphors there. I mean, and, and it's got all these embedded in jokes. I mean, you know, Jose Chung is a sort of mashup of John Keel with Richard Condon. You know, people are, whose names are, um, you know, mashups of like UFO believers and UFO skeptics. Um, it's, uh, I mean, always has its tongue in its cheek. Um, it's a, uh, and it really kind of gets down to the fact that, uh, you know, alien abductions aren't real. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say that is my view on the subject. But belief in alien abductions is real. And this is a story that talks about the nature of belief and memory and self-doubt and self-deception. And the fact that on the one hand, even if you can't quite bring yourself to um, believe, a lot of believers can't really believe themselves full bring themselves to fully believe in this. The flat, flip side is a lot of skeptics still have nagging moments of doubt about stuff they can't explain. So like this actually, this episode, a lot of stuff can be ultimately explained if you think about it. But there are a couple things that are just flatly contradictory. Um, I mean, the big one being when you have the two versions of Mulder going into the coffee shop. Um, and one, he talks with <laughs> yeah. the person who gives him the whole, and then the other, he just sort of comes in and he's like, he's, he's almost doing an Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks. Um, and literally what I was thinking. Impression. In most Twin Peaks. Yeah. yeah. And just sort of does that sort of, and, and there's that, one of my favorite jokes in it is when, because this is not just the one where we meet, we find out the men in black are Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek. This is the one where someone else meets Mulder and Scully and thinks they're the men in black. And actually calls, um, what is it that, that he calls Scully? Like the woman man in black, the female man in black. Yeah. You know? And it, it's. She was uh, trying to pull off a, the, an impression of a red haired woman and not doing it very well. Yeah. Is, I think, how he puts a little it. too red. Yeah. 
and, and so many, I mean, like the alien, the, uh, the parody of the alien autopsy uh, dissection video, which mm-hmm. was, I, those of you who weren't around in the 90s, this was a TV, a big TV um, event, uh, a, um, what was supposed to be an on-camera, um, abdu- uh, I mean, not abduction, um, dissection of, uh, of an extraterrestrial, which is, you know, up there with, you know, uh, going into Al Capone's vault in terms of, you know, TV <laughs> belly flops. And, and just, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful episode. Um, and the only problem, as with Prom- a postmodern Prometheus, the only problem with just setting someone down and saying, watch this, is that you appreciate it much more if you have sat through a couple seasons of the show and yeah. <laughs> see all the ways that it's, um, you know, uh, parodying and answering and engaging with um, what the show usually does. Plus, there's the cigarette smoking alien, right? Who's freaking out, right? And that's just great. <laughs> there, the, yeah. the, the episode that is most like this in my mind, that is also absolutely fantastic, is in the latest season uh, called "The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat," uh, which is which is a, a terribly unreliable narrator telling an absolutely ridiculous comic bookified story of uh, his having actually been. Mulder's old partner, Mulder and Scully's partner, and then it replays all these scenes from the old show where he's just sort of popped in the background and says some clever quip, and they cut to the next scene, and uh, it, it's just great. They do this so well. The final episode that we uh, watched is, I think, one of the more traditional uh, style episodes um, it and it leans towards but doesn't get directly involved in ideas of the mythology arc and the uh, sort of government conspiracy uh, and, and involvement with things though not necessarily with aliens um, but leans more less on aliens and more on the government conspiracy theme is the Pine Bluff variant uh, in which Mulder is undercover uh trying to infiltrate a militia like group uh that is spreading a, some sort of a bio weapon uh in different places and not even scully knows what's going on until a certain point in this episode um and I I was curious, Jesse, you suggested this one because of its comparison with another episode from season four called Unrequited, um, because they both deal with like militia-like groups uh, or something like that. Would you care to explain why you uh, think these two are interesting? Yeah, well, this is another part of like sort of locating the original X-Files in the time period that it was produced. I mean, the militia movement emerged in the 1990s. Um, and then, and I talked earlier about sort of it, you know, it, it you know that context of Waco and Ruby Ridge, not having the Cold War around, and not having the war on terror yet. Um, and you know, on the one hand, um, the militias held a lot of conspiracy theories, including some that overlap with the conspiracy theories in the X Files. On the other there were a lot of um, conspiracy theories about the militias, and um, you know, in the mainstream. Um, and so there was this kind of, you know, double paranoia happening at that time. So it was interesting that, you know, the show sort of engaged them directly twice, but in very different ways. In Unrequited, um, they, uh, they encounter a veteran um, who's sort of a Bogrites type. He, he leads a militia-style group called The Right Hand, and he initially seems like he's going to be the villain. Um, but at the end, um, we find out that 
you know, what he's claiming about a POW MIA, MIA cover-up um, has turned out to be true. Um, it's like the Vietnam, for those of you who are <laughs> younger and don't remember the big, there was the question of whether the U.S. government was covering up the fact that Vietnam was still holding American POWs. And in this one, the Pine Bluff variant, um, the militia is more um, clearly set out to be a villain. Uh, it, it's it's um, plugged into this fear, you know, after the Oklahoma City bombing um, with that, uh, you know, acts of terror were going to be conducted by militias. Um, in this case, it, it was actually really interesting to rewatch this one right now in light of all the um, you know, bioweapon conspiracy theories we've been hearing during the yeah. coronavirus <laughs> period. Um, but there is a, um, but even then, um, it gets more complicated. Um, not just because Mulder, um, you, you don't know to what extent, um, he's bullshitting the guy and to what extent he's sincere, but he, you know, he says he shares them a lot of the militia's concerns. He just doesn't like their methods, but even, but by the end, we find out that the feds have infiltrated the militia, that they're manipulating the militia, um, that there's, uh, it, it's basically laid out that they're, um, hoping to have this sort of, um, Effort failed, but be used as an excuse to pass um, new laws, um, which kind of gets into some of the conspiracy theories you would hear about Oklahoma City within militia circles. Um, and also, like the, the means of spreading the bioweapon was uh, going to be to spread it on cash, which, of course, turns like a central institution in American society into a tool of terror. So basically, even when the X-Files does a story about dangerous subversives, by the end, it turns out to be a story about the secret government coming to get us, um, which is yeah. pretty interesting. I also, so I thought maybe just because I was able to relate to it more, I thought this was like the most plausible to possibly happen. Maybe that's like, <laughs> maybe that's a little bit of me like reading into conspiracy theories, just because there's no like, there's no aliens, there's no people like talking to dead people or uh, reading the future are men in black. So I guess like I was able to suspend disbelief just enough in this episode to be like, okay, like this could like potentially happen. And there, uh, like uh, Jesse hinted at, there's been conspiracy theories of late about um, how like the coronavirus was uh, brought into society or released. And then uh, I think it's been a fear probably for at least the last uh, 10, 10 to 15 years about one country having a bioweapon and just being able to absolutely demolish uh, civilization. So I guess, <laughs> I guess this show kind of just fed into that. But I think definitely of the five we watched that this one was the most almost believable. And I still got to put almost in there. It's it's interesting to me you say that because uh, the, the couple of times I've heard Alex Jones, for example, ranting about the X-Files, he, he uses it as evidence of the, the things that he believes in. And so, you know, this ex example of the feds infiltrating and to a large extent orchestrating the actions of one of these militia groups, uh, you know, they, they, Mulder points out to the guy at the end, like, you killed all those people in the theater. That that actually happened. Uh, and, and the guy in the bank, like, and, you, you, you know, your credo is, well, the, the, uh, the ends justify the means. And uh, that's awful. And Alex Jones will use these examples uh, as part of the argument as that the X-Files is actually predictive programming and that what Chris Carter is trying to do is tell us that, look, this is how it works. And you're going to gradually find out that all of this stuff is true. And he's in a way leading the edge here to, to change the culture so that people are willing to finally face up to these 
things uh, that the FBI does, you know, run most of the militias or hate groups and things like that in the country. Um, and at a certain point, you can't really separate them. Uh, and, you know, I think it was Landry asked earlier, did did this show convince anybody of aliens existence? Well, it, it definitely convinced a lot of people that uh, all of all of these things, the media, the government policy, the secret shadow government policy, they're all related and helping each other out. Um, and that this is an example of media that tries to move us to the point where we accept these things or we can't understand these things anymore. And um we can't disentangle all of these threads. And so, you know, sometimes the, the militia people need to pay attention to storylines like this because it's showing it's trying to show you how your group actually works and you need to wake up. You know, so <laughs> the the hero, the hero for him in an episode like this is the militia guy who loses. Right. Not the not the undercover fed, uh, but the the um, uh, the militia guy who you know wants to take over the group. I also I I know this episode kind of feeds into um, a little bit of Cold War history coming up. And I know that Jesse had hinted at earlier that the X-Files attempts to almost rewrite Cold War history. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, Jesse? Yeah, I mean, every time or almost every time they uh, talk about, um, you know, the overarching uh, mythology, it, you know, it goes back to um, the original sort of boom in UFO sightings after World War II at the beginning of the Cold War which is a whole other topic we can get into. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and it, it sort of reimagines um, the history, especially of like the 1950s, but also, I mean, this actually happens in that Forrest Gump episode, you know, things like the Kennedy assassination and all through the lens of what all these people have been doing. And it's kind of this moment when after the Cold War is done, it's possible for a lot of people, I mean, of course, during the Cold War, a lot of people were able to say, hey, I, I think our government is up to no good. But a lot of folks who were, um, uh, you know, sort of loyal citizens or, or whatever you want to call it um, during the Cold War were perhaps more willing afterwards to at least um, mm -hmm. in the bounds of fiction to uh, say, hey, uh, what, you know, let, let's question this. Let, let's let, let's see what insidious forces might have been at work. But by the way, um, this sort of relates to the Cold War and also to the bioweapons um, side of things. But. Uh, earlier, I think it was Anthony who mentioned Paul Cantor. Um, he has a line where he says, the central image of threat during the Cold War was a nuclear explosion, destruction that starts at a clear central point and spreads outward. The central image of threat in the X-Files is infection, a plague that may begin at any point on the globe and spread to any other. Um, and that's something which I don't think went away um, when the war on terror um, began. Um, and that certainly still feels resonant right now. Um, just generally, there's this there's this generalized dread about globalization and porous borders, and um, you know what kind of uh, invisible enemies might e be even in the air, um, literally. Um, and that's a big part of the X Files. You can see that at work um, in as you know one of the fears in this episode, and obviously it's still with us today. And now for the time in our show that everyone looks forward to, where we explore the other types of media and content that we are enjoying during this time of social distancing. This is Locked In. So, Jesse, Anthony, what else are you enjoying uh, during your time uh, at home? Uh, well, apparently, I, I must hate myself quite a bit because I, I spent... <laughs> 
the weekend watching the entire Libertarian National Convention online. Uh, the, the, oh, world's, wow. <laughs> the world's first virtual convention by a, by a major political party uh, nominating the first uh, woman candidate for president in the party's history. It, it did end up uh, with some pretty interesting results. Uh, but yeah, what uh, what an S show that was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I'm a bit of a glutton for punishment, but it was very interesting to see how, how that virtual convention unfolded. Um, and then I've been using, as I, I said earlier, I, I watched all of Twin Peaks, and that's just been fantastic. So I've been watching a ton of David Lynch interviews too. And uh, I've been spending a lot of time on YouTube watching a fantastic series called Best of the Worst by Red Letter Media, where they have a panel that selects uh, three awful B-movies, and they watch them and critique them. And it's just fantastic to, to see them turn really, really terrible movies that do practically everything wrong all in one big, long string uh, into complete gold. So I, um, I just finished... Um doing a binge watch over a few weeks of Person of Interest, which is one of those post-X-Files shows. It, it's in this sort of space where it's not, it's too old to be contemporary, um, but not old enough to have like a hipster revival. So I might be the only person who was watching it. Um, but it, I, I might write about it because it, it's really interesting politically, um, especially to revisit now. And it's also a case of someone who of a show that does the mythology thing right. Um, there's this. Um, not only does it gets better as it goes along. I mean, the last three seasons are much better than the first two seasons, which are kind of I'm half enjoying it, half you know mocking it. Um, but also, I mean, every time they fill in the mythology a bit more, um, it never gets ridiculous, and it actually winds up um, turning into a master narrative that's really compelling. Um, and, and the final season in particular, I, I liked a lot. I've also been, um, re in my case, rewatching, in her case, watching for the first time with my teenage daughter, Cheers, um, which is fun. Oh, and yeah. um, my family has uh, been, uh, my other daughter is eight. So there's not a whole lot of stuff that's fun for both a 14-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, but we have had some family movie nights um, that have often been Pixar movies. And we watched... Um, all but one of, we didn't watch the Toy Story 4 because we had just seen it last year, but we watched the first three over the course of a week. And it's really interesting to watch those all together rather than spaced out as they came out in the theater, which is how I originally saw them. I, I mean, the first yeah. two I had not seen in, in um, more than two decades. Um, and uh, I got to say, they hold up, hold up really well, better than I remembered. I mean, I, mean, I liked them a lot the first time and they were even in some cases even better than I thought they were the first time. So if you haven't seen them recently, go watch a Toy Story movie. It's funny. my um, So I have a two-year-old nephew who is, like, obsessed with Toy Story. Like, he only knows the names of, like, a few Disney characters at all. And he knows all the Toy Story characters. Um, and he has, like, we got him Toy Story bedroom and all that kind of stuff. So I actually did the same thing. I watched them all with him within, like, a week or so, not too long ago. And I thought it was very interesting because just the, the way it, it grows up, it's interesting to me because obviously I saw them when they came out and I love them then, but I love them for different reasons now. Um, just because I, I, Disney and Pixar do a really great job of kind of leaving in things for adults to get giggles out of as well. Um, and I kind of I kind of enjoyed watching my nephew see it too and be so excited uh, about Toy Story. Although his favorite Toy Story character is now Forky. 
um, just because it's the most, it's in the most recent one. If you don't know who Forky is, you definitely need to see Toy Story 4. Um, but that's also how you learn, my nephew learned the word trash because Forky's are always trying to throw himself away. <laughs> um, so it's like little stories like that, that I really love about Toy Story or some of those older movies that kind of like grow up with me. Um, other things I've been watching. So I, when I was younger, we used to watch Survivor like pretty religiously as a family. We would like every uh, every week we'd like sit down and watch it at eight p.m. That I, that probably stopped when I was around like twelve, and I kind of forgot the show existed. But now that I have Hulu, I like had been binge watching Survivor again. Um, just kind of something to have on in the background since I'm like working from home and I kind of like having noise on, and I I kind of like to see the drama. I also am into this weird show called Selling Sunset. Um, it has Chriselle Hartley in it, which is, um, Justin Hartley's in the, the NBC show. This is us. That's her husband. Um, but it's like a cross between like love it or list it on like house hunters and like real housewives. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting, so it's about like the Oppenheim group, which, uh, works out of the Hollywood Hills and they sell real estate in the Holly and Beverly Hills, Hollywood Hills and, uh, like Bella Air and stuff. And it goes to like all of their office drama, but then it like for a solid like twenty minutes in the show too, they're like showing you these like crazy expensive gorgeous houses in the Hollywood Hills. So it like has just enough drama to keep me hooked, but also like I I also like the fixer upper love it or list it type shows. So it, it's an interesting cross between. Um, it's on Netflix if you haven't seen it. <laughs> uh, during my uh, time at home, I. We are finishing and coming to the end of something I mentioned during our last recording, which is another uh, excellent Bravo television show called Below Deck um, <laughs> about yachties that work on a mega Terrible. yacht. It's um, awful. Oh, it's, it's, so, it's so awful, but I, I do love it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to find some new things, but I have recently been listening to the newest season of a podcast that has just started back up again called Articles of Interest, which is produced by Avery Truffleman, uh, who is one of the producers for another very, very popular podcast called 99% Invisible, um, which is generally about design, uh, hosted by Roman Mars. But uh, one of their producers has a this limited series project called Articles of Interest, as I mentioned before, that's mainly about clothing um, oh. and tells these really incredible stories about how certain pieces of clothing came to be, became popular, uh, accessories. So there's episodes about blue jeans. There's one about... Uh, pockets. There's another about uh, uh, the one that I just listened to that was really, really fascinating that I had never thought about before. It was about perfume. Um, and it became not just about perfume, but like the scent aroma industry and all of the different scents and products out there that have scents that you wouldn't think do and how that industry and, and trends have changed from like the 50s and 60s into the 90s and today. And it was really interesting, but also very emotional um, because of all of the sort of sense memory and uh, evocative nature that uh, smell or sense of smell has that they discussed. So you, I learned a lot, but at the end, there's like some really emotional moments where they talk about appreciating your sense of smell and the, the memories that that can and the emotions that those things can bring up. And it, it it really got to me. I was walking back from the grocery store when I finished it, and I was tearing up a little, but it was Aww. in a good way. <laughs> um, 
And I also have been listening to another uh, few podcasts by another former 99% Invisible producer named Sam Greenspan. And they have produced uh, one called Bellwether that I think there's only one episode out of. And they're currently trying to finish up the rest of the first season. And it's uh, what they deem speculative journalism. So not like speculative fiction. but uh, it, So there are fiction... There is a sort of fiction frame narrative of someone in the future going through and cataloging and tagging uh, this podcast that is um, the, a character sort of with an AI discussing this, this project that they're cataloging. And then they, you listen to the project itself, and it's this uh, pieces of journalism that Sam Greenspan, the actual person making this is conducting about uh, usually technologies that are, you know, in development. So the first episode was about the uh, driverless car that hit that woman in Arizona. Uh, and it's a really interesting discussion of artificial intelligence and the, the decision-making processes that they have to make for driverless cars and things that they call like the crumple zone and, and those split-second decisions that they have to make within this nested fictional narrative. Um, and, and it's also just like really, really sonically interesting, amazing music and production that sounds at once uh, very analog and organic, but still science fiction-y. So mm -hmm. if you're into that, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I've also been trying to catch up on uh, some old short story magazines that I have, that I had bought several years ago. Uh, they sadly stopped publishing the magazine, uh, I think about a year ago, but Tin House um, publishes an amazing uh, quarterly magazine of short fiction and poetry and reviews that I really, really enjoy. And uh, I plan on watching Howl's Moving Castle very, very soon because my fiance really, really wants to watch it. And I think that'll be a nice escape. Uh, so I'm looking forward to some uh, Miyazaki films to distract me from our current climate. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, have any tips leading to the solving of an X-File, or just want to let us know that you're one of our reptilian overlords who enjoys listening to the show, follow us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. Libertarianism.org